is not the best of days. Let's just be honest. Um, I'm personally having a great day. About to go record with Alex Stein and Luke Rutkowski over on We Are Change, but uh, over the past 48 hours, there has been a pretty significant invasion of the uh, southern part of Israel by, uh, I think it would be fair to describe them as terrorists because they are not uh, abiding by any normal rules of warfare. And it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking to witness. And it's heartbreaking that this has been a kind of slow boil situation for as long as I've been alive, practically, or longer, <laughs> I should say. It's terrible. It's terrible. But I just wanted to give my two cents before I head out of here on you know, what, what I think about it, what I think the libertarian position is on it, um, but more importantly, what I think the, the moral position is on it. Um, you know, I obviously I'm anti-interventionist. I'm non-interventionist. I believe that unless America is directly threatened and, or attacked, rather, uh, there's really no reason to justify American intervention. And there's a tremendous amount of people in our political uh, establishment that uh, do not view things that way. They talk a lot about our interests, American interests abroad, right? You hear that a lot. Geopolitical interests, financial interests, trading interests, things like that. Uh, I'm of the opinion that it is a huge mistake to believe that in intervention is justified based off of economic realities. Uh, I don't think that it's ever right to kill people for trade issues. I think that that's crazy. And I know it's a very, it's a very common belief in our political elite that it is more than justified. They, they talk about it openly. No one has any shame about it. I think that it's deeply immoral. If I'm being totally honest with you guys, I think it's deeply, deeply immoral to say, well, Clint, what about OPEC? Well, uh, we're just incredibly blessed to be in a nation where we can produce more than enough oil and gas to sustain the American economy. I don't think that OPEC or uh, battering down oil prices is ever a adequate justification for intervention from America. Now, that's, now that I've said all of that, let me also say, I think that what happened to the Israeli people is horrific and uh, particularly the innocents, you know, the soldiers, it's, I mean, it's not good, but it's a different situation, obviously, since they've been fighting with each other for decades. But the civilians in particular, it's horrible. And I think that the, the nation of Israel has every right to respond. Uh, I hope that they respond in a, in a fashion that is not, uh, you know, wanton violence. I hope that it's a, in a fashion that is directed at the people responsible for the attacks and not at civilians. And unfortunately, in modern warfare, it still has a tremendous amount of collateral damage. And this is why I can't in good conscience just say, well, you know, <laughs> the attack came from Palestine. So uh, whatever they have to do in response is justified. That's not how I view things. I think that in those situations, you will lose a, a tremendous amount of innocent people. And I'm never going to cheer that no matter what side you think is the more morally righteous one, war is hell, war is hell. And people like Nikki Haley and the other politicians that are cheerleading uh, this response, you know, claiming that finish it or finish them is what Nikki Haley said boldly, cowardly, in my opinion. Uh, 
it's just not that simple. It's not that simple. And as far as I'm concerned, Israel has the right to defend themselves and they have a right to go after those that are responsible and, and those that are responsible for the planning too. But let's be honest with ourselves. This is a very, I mean, the fog of war is always bad, but particularly when a war just starts, it is horrifically bad. Like you can't, you can't know anything to be true unless 24, 48 hours have passed and you've had an opportunity to actually let it play out a little bit. And I think that we would all do ourselves a great service to allow some time to pass and to not lend any sort of vocal support for any actions until there's some clarity as to what's transpired. And here's the reason I say that. First off, there's been a tremendous amount of videos that have been circulating and doing millions and millions of views very, very rapidly that have already been community noted, demonstrating definitively that people are taking videos that are years old and out of context or even current videos, but claiming that it's Palestinian soldiers when in fact it's Israeli soldiers. It, it's all it's all crazy. And, you know, this is the type of mis and disinformation that they always uh, argue we need censorship for. I'm not arguing in, f in favor of censorship. I am arguing in favor of uh, calm, discernment, patience, think, allow, allow some time for you to wrap your head around what's actually transpired to get some real evidence as to what's going on. The, the main reason that I think that this is vitally necessary that we do so, if you remember the early early days of the Ukraine war, it was just crazy amounts of misinformation and, and lies. I mean, it was just war propaganda. That's what it is. And and there's there's war propaganda on all sides all the time. Uh, the Russians do it too, but it, there's this tendency that if it's like, if it's our side, which I don't really know why Ukraine is our side, but it has been declared by the media that it is, uh, that any of those war propaganda tools are just lifted up as if they are truth from God himself. And as we've learned with Snake Island, etc., that is not the case. There is massive deception on both sides. And the reason that I, I really take pause is that the Israel-Palestine border, the southern border of Israel, along the lines of the West Bank, is one of the most heavily guarded, defended, monitored borders on earth. On earth. And with good reason. Because there has been consistent fighting and missile barrages and all sorts of bombardments for a very long time. So it makes sense that it would be. I'm not even saying it shouldn't be. Uh, but it doesn't make any sense to me that 400 well-armed uh, Hamas members were able to come across without any sort of pushback. It makes no sense. It's very, very bizarre. I mean, now let me say, maybe there's a good explanation. Maybe. But it's odd. I think we should all be able to acknowledge it's odd. And before we jump to any conclusions, we ought to at least say, I need an answer to that before I'm going to come to any semblance of a conclusion. And a lot of people are not giving us that time. A lot of people are saying, we must respond now. We, as if Israel is our 51st state, as if America has been attacked. You've seen American politicians all weekend are just saying America has been attacked. This is an attack on America. No, no, actually it's not. It's not an attack on America. It is a horrific attack, but it is an attack against Israel. 
and Israel is not America. I know it seems like, why do you, why are you even saying this? Because people are saying things to the contrary and it's nonsense. And I think that it's important that we maintain the perspective, like the maintain the reality of the situation here. Is it tragic? Yes. Is this an attack on America? No. Does this justify a response? Yes. Does the, does this justify a response on the behalf of America, the American taxpayer or the American military? No. No it doesn't. Because it's not an attack against us. And if you're if you're in the GOP side, the the alleged anti-war side, the side that was consistently saying we don't want to go to war with Russia, we're not Ukraine. Try and maintain that same energy here. We're not Israel. We're not Ukraine. We're not. We're not. If you're an America first voter or politician, and you've suddenly shifted your belief system, well then you are an inconsistent person. You're not viewing this the same way. Now be honest with yourself as to why. Now, if it's because you love Israel, okay. But just realize that you are putting Israel's interests above that of America and the American military. Because right now we have American warships that are en route to Israel. Right now, they are already sending American troops. Now, could it just be a show of force and be a preventative measure to hopefully prevent Iran from simultaneously attacking Israel? Sure. Maybe that is what it is. But it gives me great, great concern that we have a military or we have wars breaking out in Azerbaijan. We have uh, now a war between that has been declared from Israel against the Palestinians. I hope it's against Hamas and not just the Palestinian nation. I don't know. Um, and then obviously the war between Russia and Ukraine, and now also the potential, as all of this pops off, you have the potential that China moves on Taiwan. And then God knows after that. I mean, basically every, all of these nations are, are starting to, I think, see the instability and a lot of old wounds and unsettled scores are being addressed simultaneously. And this is kind of what you would expect as the US empire declines. And in some ways it's natural, in some ways it's human nature, in no way is it a good thing, it's tragic, but it is what it is. And I don't wanna see my countrymen sent abroad to die for ancient beefs. No thank you. And let me add one last note, we can't do it. Financially, we can't do it. Culturally, we're in such disarray if you want to see America truly implode upon itself, yeah, advocate on behalf of all these interventions. Let the empire really just bleed itself out financially because that's what you're advocating for. Make no mistake. The inflationary pressures will only increase and we're already suffering pretty terribly. So it's going to get way, way worse. On top of that, you have millions and millions of illegal immigrants that are coming across the border simultaneously. Do you think that that paired with multiple, a multi-front war simultaneously, along with an economy that is very long in the tooth, dealing with inflationary pressures, dealing with a $33 trillion debt, dealing with you know unemployment figures that are way understated, uh, dealing with young people that feel rudderless and powerless to do anything uh, with their lives. Do you think any of this leads in a good place, in a good direction? The answer is obviously no.
It's obviously no. So you have one little voice, one little voice, same as me. And we get to lend our voice to something in this moment. And I would argue strongly that the only viable path to having any semblance of a viable future for America is for us to use our tiny little voice collectively to say peace, no war, no intervention, no American involvement. Do not buy the war propaganda. No matter how awful what's happening is, we don't need to be involved. America invo American involvement has not, uh, particularly in this area of the planet, hasn't been received very well. And it hasn't worked out very well for the people over there either. I don't want to create any more enemies. We have enough. I don't want to create any more debt. We've got more than enough. And I don't want to lose any more of my countrymen, either in battle or when they get home. I've seen that way too much. That's all. I hope you guys will enjoy the interview with Alex Stein and Luke Rukowski. It is over on We Are Change. You guys can find that uh, on Rumble if you want to see the full two hours. The second hour is always un unedited, uncensored. And now for the rest of the show. Enjoy. So when you look at how to go forward for the countries, you say, is there any area of coalition building that could happen? There are pragmatic Republicans, as you say. Could there be a new, a whole new way of trying to, you know, get legislation going and cross-party governance going by Democrats and certain Republicans forming a coalition? Well, you saw uh, the number of Republicans who voted along with Democrats to keep the government open. So there's clearly a common sense, uh, you know, sane uh, part of the Republican caucus in the House. Um, but I think they are intimidated. Uh, they um, oftentimes, you know, say and do things which they know better than to say or do. And it will require us defeating those most extreme measures uh, and the people who promote them in order to try to get to some common ground where people can again work together. That's the way it used to be. I mean, we had very strong partisans in both parties in the past. Uh, and we had very bitter battles over all kinds of things, gun control and climate change and the economy and taxes. But there wasn't this little tail of extremism waving, you know, wagging the dog of the uh, Republican Party. Mind you that what she's talking about there is the, the people that are demanding that every spending bill be voted on individually so that they don't do any of this omnibus nonsense. She's describing these people that are willing to shut down the government if they don't get back to some semblance of reasonable spending parameters. They are the extremists, a complete inversion of reality, which is exactly what you should expect from someone like Hillary Clinton. As it is today. Mm -hmm. And sadly, so many of those extremists, those mega extremists, um, take their marching orders from Donald Trump, who has no credibility left by any measure he's only so many of them take their marching orders from donald trump that they did that they went against and voted out kevin mccarthy as speaker of the house despite the fact that donald trump was the one who had endorsed him for that position it's not even based in reality this is just a pure power play i want to make sure that's clear only in it for himself he's now defending himself in civil actions and criminal actions and when do they break with him you know, because 
They just did. At some point, you know, maybe there needs to be a formal deprogramming of the cult members, but something needs to happen. And how do you want that to pause there and talk about this for a second, because it's about as serious a statement as I have ever heard from a politician, much less someone from the Clinton family, which obviously caused me great pause. We need a formal deprogramming, a formal deprogramming. What do you think that entails? Does that sound like, you know, re-education camps, gulag type stuff to you? Because it ought to. It ought to send a chill down your spine that you have someone that's so deeply immersed in the political morass that she would say something like that, that she would do so publicly. Keep in mind, these people don't really say anything publicly that's accidental for the most part. Do you think that that wasn't uh, thought about deeply before she uttered it to the 10,000 people that watch CNN still? No. Uh, she thought about that one long and hard, I would assure you. And the fact that it's now, uh, you know, circulating online for people to realize what we're up against, I think it's an important moment for us to come together and understand exactly what we're up against. We're up against people that perceive us to be a danger, not so much to democracy, as they say repeatedly, but to their hegemony, to their monopolistic stranglehold of power in this country. Could it be more clear? What is she talking about here? She's talking about these extremist MAGA Republicans, which by the way, just went against Donald Trump's endorsement and wishes in ousting Kevin McCarthy. And she's saying that they need deprogramming camps. What? What the hell is happening? How, how are we living in a time where we have some of the most famous politicians. Keep in mind, she was almost the president of the United States. Couple, couple 10,000 votes here and there in a handful of different states, and she would have been the president of the United States. And she's saying that the 60 plus million people that voted for Donald Trump need to be deprogrammed formally. I, do I even need to really emphasize how dangerous this is? how crazy this is. And on the inverse of that, if you're going to go down this path, who truly needs to be deprogrammed? Is it the people that still believe in God and country? Or is it the people that believe in totalitarian control, complete global hegemony, a military industrial complex run amok, and no limits to spending, modern monetary theory, are those, are those the people that should be deprogrammed? Yeah, if we're going to have deprogramming camps, I would, I would argue strongly that it ought to be them. But guess what? I still wouldn't argue for that because it's not American at all. It's extraordinarily dangerous to talk about rounding up your political, political opponents and re-engineering their minds. This is what happens in China. This is, this is actually what's happening to the Uyghurs. There's lots of controversy as to whether or not there's a genocide uh, against the Uyghurs, but I would say definitively, they are not being treated well. They are being reprogrammed and they have camps to do so. Is that the future you want? Do you want to have 70 million well-armed Americans being targeted, which they already are, mind you, by the FBI? Do you want them to now be targeted for re-education? And do you think that they'll acquiesce to that? Do you think that they'll go along with that?
Because I would imagine that the Uyghurs weren't sitting on a, a boatload of firearms before their reprogramming began. Well, guess what? The Trump supporters are, by and large. And I don't think they're going to go to the camps quietly. So I would encourage everybody to pull their fucking foot off of the gas pedal for a minute and think about what you're talking about here. Is this actually the future that you want? Do you want to start to round up people that you disagree with? Because I have plenty of disagreements with half of the people in this country or more. Would I ever be so narcissistic, so psychopathic that I would call for re-education of them? Forced re-education of them? No. Because I believe strongly that the best ideas, if given a fair hearing, will win out. I don't need to force my ideas on people. I can actually put them out and allow people to listen to them voluntarily or not. What a concept. Dangerous, dangerous human being. Let's hear what else Miss Hillary Clinton has to say. I'm sure it gets much better from here. You do that because you said you have to defeat them by defeating their leader. Their leader right. is Donald Trump. Even you have said that you expect him to be the Republican nominee. How does this change at all? At this point, I think, sadly, he will still likely be the nominee, and we have to defeat him. And we have to defeat those who are the election deniers, as we did in 2020 and 2022. Um, and we have to, you know, just be smarter. How, how can she have the nerve to refer to people as election deniers when she propagated the Russian collusion narrative? She, she actually created, concocted it, whole cloth, whole cloth, mind you. Steel dossier funded by her camp. And she's going to reference the Trump supporters, the MAGA extremists as election deniers. The audacity. About how we are trying to uh, empower the right people inside the Republican Party. You know, what does she mean by the right people? Lindsey Graham, Mitch McConnell, Ipatch McCain. You know who she means. The neocons, the people that share her worldview of complete global conquest. Nancy Pelosi had a majority of five votes when she was speaker. Kevin McCarthy had a majority of five votes. Nancy Pelosi passed consequential legislation. And she clearly had members within her caucus who, you know, ranged across a spectrum of political beliefs and ideology. And she kept everybody together. And she kept everybody focused on the future. Mm -hmm. He couldn't do that. And so he paid a price, but more importantly, the country paid a price. And so when you see another matchup between potentially Trump and President Biden, what goes through your mind? And particularly, how do you process that this person who defeated you back in 2016 is still at it, given all that you've said? 91 indictments, you know, civil fraud, sexual transgressions, according to the courts. How, how is this still happening? It's the classic tale of uh, an authoritarian uh, populist uh, who really has a grip on the emotional, psychological uh, needs and desires of a portion of the uh, population. Uh, imagine calling Donald Trump an authoritarian when you're sitting up there as Hillary fucking Clinton. Un believable that she would go that path to call him authoritarian <laughs> absolutely amazing and and keeping in mind who has the 
ideological grip on their constituents more than the Democrats, where they have fear-mongered and convinced an entire generation of young people that if there aren't caps on carbon, the thing of life, that everyone will perish, that the planet will overheat to the point of life ending. Who is manipulating whose psyche more, Hillary? And the base of the Republican Party, for whatever combination of reasons, and it is emotional and psychological, um, sees in him someone who speaks for them. And they are determined that they will continue to vote for him, attend his rallies, wear his merchandise, because for whatever reason, he and his you know, very negative, uh, nasty form of politics resonates with them. Maybe they don't like migrants. Maybe they don't like gay people or black people or the oh woman who got God. the promotion at work they didn't get. Whatever the reason, you know, Make America Great Again was a bid uh, for nostalgia to return to a place where, you know, people could be in charge of their lives, feel empowered, say what they want, insult whoever came in their way. And that was really attractive to um, a significant portion of the Republican base. What a, what a disgusting portrayal of the 70 million people that voted for Donald Trump. That it's all about hating migrants and wanting to be openly racist. What fucking world do these people live in to think that that's what 70 million Americans actually supported Donald Trump over? As opposed to it being a direct reflection of their animosity towards people like you, Hillary. People that destroyed this country, that destroyed our dollar, our savings, our children's minds with your manipulative authoritarian tactics. Which do you think it is? Is it this deep desire to go back to Jim Crow? Or is it just that everyone in the media, everyone in the political class... Everyone in Hollywood, across the board, in the education system, they all lie and they all hate every single one of the people that voted for Donald Trump. And they were declaring loudly that we don't care if you hate us, we hate you too. That's the real base of the support for Donald Trump and anybody in their right mind knows it. Now, she may not be willing to acknowledge how many people despise her very existence, but Let's be honest, that's really why he became a phenomenon. Uh, so it is like a cult. And somebody has to break, the, uh, you know, <laughs> break that momentum. And that's why I believe Joe Biden will defeat him. And hopefully then that will be the end and the fever will break. And then uh, Republicans can try to get back to, you know, fighting about issues among themselves and electing people who are at least, you know, responsible and accountable responsible and accountable nothing like you know responsibly and accountably racking up 33 trillion dollars in debt that is not at all sustainable that will absolutely crush the economy for decades moving forward that's that's what 
all of the people that she's describing as the good Republicans, the sane Republicans, they're the ones that go along with the omnibus spending bills. They're the ones that would never shut down the government, no matter how reckless, no matter how totalitarian it became. Those are the ones that she says are sane. Well, if those are the ones that are sane, give me the insane ones. Give me the Matt Gates. Give me the Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world. Give me the entire Freedom Caucus. Give me the Thomas Masseys. Give me the Rand Pauls. Give me the obstinate, intransigent few over the lunatic majority or the sane majority in your worldview. You liar, you deceitful, warmongering pig. You're a bad person, Hillary. And I'm glad that you never got the presidency. And I hope that you live with it for the remainder of your days. That one of the most obnoxious, ridiculous politicians was enough to prevent you from hitting the pinnacle of your esteemed, blood-soaked career. You got exactly what you deserved. You lost to a clown. And that will forever be your legacy. Aside from the millions that perished untimely because of your time in the State Department. That's your legacy. As always, today's episode of Liberty Lockdown is brought to you by NadeauShaveCo.com. That's N-A-D-E-A-U ShaveCo.com. Enjoy your shave. Stop sending your money to the companies that despise your very existence and send your money to get the best razor in the game. I'm not even slightly exaggerating when I tell you this is the best razor I've ever owned. It's the best feeling, best made, best materials, best quality. It's single blade, minimize ingrown hairs, razor burn, and irritation with their 100% recyclable plastic-free razors at NadeauShaveCo.com. Veteran-owned, family-operated, N-A-D-E-A-U, ShaveCo.com, promo code LOCKDOWN. Get it today. We got some big news, Laura Logan tweeted out, from Governor Greg Abbott's desk. On Monday, October 9th, it will begin at 1 p.m. Texas will also pass laws to mirror the federal immigration laws President Joe Biden refuses to enforce that will reduce illegal immigration and, and enhance the safety of Texans. For the first time ever, Texas will subject people to arrest for illegally entering or excuse me, for illegal entry into our state from a foreign nation. All licensed law enforcement officers in Texas will be authorized to arrest or remove any person who illegally enters the state with penalties up to 20 years in prison for refusing to comply with removal. To crack down on repeated attempts to ent entry Texas illegally, reentry will be penalized with up to 20 years in prison. Wow. And this my dear open immigration libertarian friends is exactly what i feared that eventually one of these border states would have had enough that they would put their fist down and that is a fist 20 years in prison now whether or not it'll actually be enforced who knows whether or not the supreme court or the feds will get involved and try to intervene to prevent this from happening i would say it probably will happen in that in that uh, direction but this is, this is where we're headed. If you allow millions of people to flood into this country, you're eventually going to have state governors, and eventually is now, that say, we're going to use our own monopoly on violence to go after these people very aggressively. Now, there's a lot of fixes that can happen at the federal level. 
But as far as I'm concerned, given the current people in charge, it is going to be a states' rights issue. And if you're a libertarian, you should acknowledge that states' rights are at least more in alignment with libertarianism than federal dictates, correct? I would hope. Well then, you should respect the wishes of the people of Texas that they don't want any more. They don't want any more illegal entry into their country from foreigners. And can you blame them? All it took was Ron DeSantis and then eventually a year later, Greg Abbott beginning to bus and ship and fly these illegal entrants into their country into alleged sanctuary cities. And less than a year later, you have the sanctuary cities themselves saying, we're full. We can't handle this. It's going to collapse our infrastructure. It's going to blow up our budgets. We will be bankrupted by this process. They also have migrant camps that are being set up that are just essentially added to the already blossoming homelessness crisis in New York City. It's not sustainable. You are on the wrong side of history if you just stand there and go, the state has no right to dictate borders. They have no right to enforce property rights for the people that have paid taxes in Texas, that have voted and lived there their entire lives. And you're going to side with the people who are granted fleeing tremendous financial hardship because of many of our policies, including the war on drugs in you know, Latin America. I'm not, I'm not trying to dismiss the creation of this event from the federal level and from federal policy. It's real, obviously. That doesn't change the, the reality for the people on the ground, the people that live in Texas and now the people that live in Chicago and New York and any of these other sanctuary cities that are also feeling the weight of this crisis. It is a serious crisis. So I, for one, despite the fact that I, I would obviously not like to see people serve 20 years if they are in, sincerely just fleeing tyranny from down south, that's kind of where it has to go. There has to be some sort of harsh punishment to prevent this flood from continuing. The alternative is to build an ironclad fortress of a state with walls and all sorts of defense mechanisms that would not be very kind. That's, that's what would be required to prevent them from actually getting in and barring that. Well, then once they're in, you have to punish them terribly to prevent and send a signal that, Hey, we're not playing around anymore because for the longest time it has been known to anybody coming across that they will essentially end up being allowed to stay. And that can't be sustained. You can look across Europe. You can see all of the same crises that are, are popping up because of the same silly, ridiculous policies. So here, here we are like it or hate it. This was the natural conclusion of allowing your borders to stay open for decades. And we'll see how it turns out. Speaking of politicians of Hillary Clinton's ilk, we've got Jacinda Ardern speaking in New York to the UN. This week we launched an initiative alongside companies and nonprofits to help improve research and understanding of how a person's online experiences are curated by automated processes. This will also be important in understanding more about mis- and disinformation online, a challenge that we must, as leaders, address. Sadly, I think it's easy to dismiss this problem as one in the margins, 
I can certainly understand the desire to leave it to someone else. As leaders, we're rightly concerned that even the most light-touch approaches to disinformation could be misinterpreted as being hostile to the values of free speech that we value so highly. But while I cannot tell you today what the answer is to this challenge, I can say with complete certainty that we cannot ignore it. <laughs> can you imagine having the audacity to say that these, these measures will be misinterpreted as an affront to these other values that we also care about, like free speech and open dialogue? Sure, sure, Hacinda, I'm sure you care about that at all. To do so poses an equal threat to the norms we all value. After all, how do you successfully end a war if people are led to believe the reason for its existence is not only legal but noble? How do you tackle climate change if people do not believe it exists? Incredible. Incredible. Just think about all of the wars that the United States in particular, which by the way, she's giving this speech in the United States, in New York. All of the wars that have been foisted upon the American people predicated on lies, on outright provable lies over and over again. Gulf of Tonkin, the babies in incubators, the WMDs in Iraq. I mean, the list goes on and on. But now, now we have another empire, a much, a much smaller one in Russia that has invaded Ukraine based off of a bunch of grievances, which I find to be quite legitimate, that NATO's movement to the east, to their border, was untenable. And that particularly the reddest of red lines, as they said repeatedly, was Ukraine. And now she's going to justify censorship and algo deboosting and all sorts of manipulation of the online environment so that the narrative that they've tried to portray that Vladimir Putin is this evil Nazi Hitler-esque lunatic that we must now censor dialogue on the internet so that we can maintain our narrative monopoly. That's what she's actually arguing for. Granted, yeah, sure. As long as we've been propagating the narrative, we've been deceiving you 24-7. But you can trust us because there's a graver threat on the horizon, and that threat is Putin. What a utter, utter joke. How do you ensure the human rights of others are upheld when they are subjected to hateful and dangerous rhetoric and ideology? <laughs> the weapons may be different, but the goals of those who perpetuate them is often the same to cause chaos and reduce the ability of others to defend themselves, to disband communities, to collapse the collective strength of countries who work together. But we have an opportunity here to ensure that these particular weapons of war do not become an established part of warfare. I mean, to describe mis- and disinformation as weapons of war, when what, they're, what they've actually been censoring have been some of the most prestigious, highly acclaimed cardiologists and pathologists and, I mean, all of the best in the medical establishment. Those were the people that were actually censored and kicked off of all social media platforms during the COVID era because they were alleged to be propagating misinformation and disinformation. Now, in hindsight, who was telling the truth? Was it Anthony Fauci or was it the frontline doctors? I think history has proven that you cannot entrust these people with decision-making, particularly in times of crisis, as to who and what is the truth, who and what 
is mis- and disinformation. If you have to make a wager as to what and who is propagating mis- and disinformation, you're looking at it. Hacinda, it's you. In these times, I'm acutely aware of how easy it is to feel disheartened. We are facing many battles on many fronts, but there is cause for optimism because for every new weapon we face, there is a new tool to overcome it. <laughs> for every attempt to push the world into chaos is a collective conviction to bring us back to order. We have the means. We just need the collective will. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. We have the means to totalitarianly crack down on any sort of dissident thought or speech on the internet. We just need the collective will. We just need the American people to bow down and shut up and accept us as their overlords. We just need to get them to acquiesce, to buy into the narrative that the people telling you the truth are the liars and the liars are the ones telling you the truth. We have the tools. We just need the collective will. Well, if you include me in that collective, you do not have my will. In fact, you have my fierce and unyielding opposition. You will never get what you want. Anybody that cares about freedom or peace for that matter should realize that narrative control and offering them up the tools to do so, while one, they are unconstitutional, two, they are incredibly, deeply immoral and incredibly dangerous. Do not, do not give them an inch. Hold them accountable for these tools that they have already implemented when it comes to the CDC or DHS or the FBI manipulating terms of service of social media companies to deplatform people like me, people like you. Sorry, I sound like Oliver Anthony. <laughs> you have to strip them of these tools. You have to challenge them in courts. You have to get it to the Supreme Court. In fact, just last week, there was a ruling that came down that barred CDC, DHS, FBI, all of these institutions from doing what they had been doing during the COVID era. It declared it loudly as unconstitutional censorship, federal level censorship, shit that should never be happening or allowed to happen in the United States of America, the proverbial land of the free. Are you kidding me? That's where we're at now? That censorship from the federal level is not just being perpetrated against us, but it is being discussed in front of the United Nations by an, a recently removed tyrant in Hacinda Ardern. She has the gall, the audacity to stand up there and talk about how they have the tools, they just need the collective will for us to give up on the entire framework of classical liberalism, that free speech, that open dialogue, that debate cannot be allowed any further. I am not interested in living in your dystopic hellscape that you prefer. Now, from your vantage point, it's advantageous, obviously, because it allows you to maintain your stranglehold on narrative and on power. It's not going to go down that way. We have the internet. We have blockchain technology. We're not going to allow you to go down this path and take us with you. We're not going to do it. 
We've already realized, the vast majority of us, particularly the people listening to my voice right now, have already realized how dangerous that path is. And it is far more dangerous than an airborne pathogen. Far more dangerous. Exponentially more dangerous. Cataclysmic, existentially dangerous. That is the path that she prefers, and I reject it wholeheartedly. Now, let me spin this positively. Does she sound confident? She says, I am acutely aware of how challenging this time is, how concerning it all is. Yeah, I'm acutely aware, too, that you've been removed from power, that your stranglehold on the narrative is fleeting. It is diminishing rapidly. God, God will it to evaporate entirely. They are losing control. That is what all of this is about. They have maintained a monopoly on narrative through Operation Mockingbird and the control of the news pundits throughout your entire life. Well, guess what? There's a new game in town. And it's tens of thousands of people like me that are actually doing the research on their own and coming to their own conclusions and delivering it to their own audiences of 10 or 20 or 100,000 people at a time. It is a diffuse and unstoppable chain of information. That's what they're concerned with. That's why they have to have these heart-to-heart -heart talks about how concerned they are about mis- and disinformation. That we are telling far closer to the truth. We are always attempting to tell the entire truth if we can, when we know it, as opposed to their complete manipulation of the narrative and of the reality that we languish under. So yeah, you're not going to prevail, Hacinda. Your time is up. You've already been removed from power. And talking about yourself as if you are still in a position of power tells me everything I need to know. That you did your job. You did the bidding of the people that actually pull your strings. The Klauses of the world, the World Economic Forums of the world, the United Nations of the world, the NATOs of the world, the United States government, the State Departments of the world, the CIAs and the FBIs of the world. I know who you work for, and it ain't me, and it ain't the people listening to this right now. You aren't our ally. You are, in fact, our enemy. Now, you don't have to be. As a kind, loving human being, I can forgive and I can move on. But only if you relinquish power entirely. Only if you stop trying to reclaim it. Only if you stop trying to suppress my voice. Only then. Only then when you stop trying to force a product into my body. Only then when you stop trying to mask children against a pathogen that they weren't at any significant risk for, from. Only when you stop trying to get us to use some sort of new technological device to declare our own internal workings of our blood. That's what they tried to do. I know it sounds crazy. That's what we just lived through. Only when you stop trying to have camps for people that refuse to take that very product. Only when you stop censoring and using the intelligence agencies to uh, suppress and attack and hunt people like me. Only when they stop. Then forgiveness can be had. Sounds like I'm asking a lot, doesn't it? That's only a signifier of how totalitarian you've become. How tyrannical. So yeah, I don't take kindly to you talking about mis- and disinformation when you were the worst you were one of the absolute worst on earth. I don't take kindly. And that, that applies to Hillary Clinton too. 
If you are sick of the volatility in the stock market and really any asset class out there, let me tell you, today's sponsor is a great opportunity to diversify your portfolio further and to potentially hedge against the inflationary pressures we've all been dealing with lately. UBS shows that private assets like fine art can help diversify with a low correlation to stocks. Bloomberg reports art prices increased in 2022 to the highest total sales ever for major auction houses. And in 2023, the art market has passed its pre-pandemic level Level already tens of thousands of everyday investors already use today's sponsor which is masterworks to invest in art you don't need millions or art expertise every masterworks sale to date has delivered a positive return to their investors it's an incredible track record so far including annualized net returns of 10 17 and even 35 percent all this year masterworks most recent exit was just days ago at the end of august for a double digit 13.4 percent annualized net return now that is outpacing inflation ladies and gentlemen just go to masterworks.art slash lockdown. My listeners get special access to skip the wait list. All they have to do is go to masterworks.art slash lockdown. Again, the link will be in the description. Past performance doesn't guarantee future returns. Any investing involves risk, including loss of principal. See important disclosures at masterworks.com slash CD. That's masterworks.art slash lockdown. Check it out. Boy, oh boy. I didn't mean to have this all be female tyrants that I had to excoriate today, but we have another one. This is Letitia James, the prosecutor in uh, New York that's going after Trump, giving a tweet video while she has gagged the former president of the United States so that he cannot defend himself in the court of public opinion. She is attacking him in the court of public opinion. It is unspeakably evil what she's doing here. Today was the fourth day of our trial against Donald Trump, the Trump Organization, and other defendants. We spent the majority of the day questioning Jeffrey McConney, the former controller at the Trump Organization and one of the defendants in our lawsuit. Mr. McConney was responsible for collecting the data and valuations that were used to compile the fraudulent statements of financial condition at the center of our case. He testified that he and the other defendants, including Alan Weisselberg, used baseless property values to inflate Mr. Trump's net worth. This inflated net worth was then used to obtain tax benefits, insurance benefits, and favorable loan terms. The defendants like to act as though this case is very complicated, when in fact the fraud they committed is simple. Donald Trump often calls his business perfect and beautiful, but it's clear that when it comes to running a company, he doesn't care about the real numbers or the facts. He is more interested in personal attacks and distractions. The reality is, under our system of law, the facts matter, and we will continue to make our case in court. What what an utter joke. Um, keep in mind, this is the lady who said that Mar-a-Lago, which for those that don't know, Mar-a-Lago means from the sea to the lake. It is a small, I mean, it's a fairly large uh, parcel of land, enormous property on it, which is a business itself, which is like a country club that makes tens of millions of dollars per year from dues. Uh, it's also just on the property alone, I would argue is worth approaching $100 million in today's market. And she's claiming that it's worth between 18 and 25 million, a laughably low figure, laughably low. And she's going to try and end his, I mean, really end his life, put him in prison 
I mean, he's an older guy. It'll probably be enough to to keep him behind bars for the rest of his life, not to mention all of the other charges that are against him. But, the, I mean, to gag a defendant and then to lie about the case publicly is just... I, I'm like I'm honestly I'm speechless. It's it's just so so deeply evil. How is it that we can live in a country where not just an average person, but the former president of the United States can be gagged as he is lied about publicly by a district attorney? I mean this is this is so crazy, and they're lying about the property values. I mean. Whether or not Trump's estimates of his property values were exactly right, that's the underwriter's job to decide. No one can actually know definitively what a property is worth because value, ladies and gentlemen, is subjective. And only to to know the actual current market value of any property, the only way you can do so is to sell it. So the only way you can actually give an estimate of value is to, wait for it, drumroll, estimate. You have to estimate. Now, if it's a reasonable estimate, it should be in alignment with some of the comps competing sales in the in the neighborhood. Now, if you look at competing sales in the neighborhood of Mar-a-Lago, you have to be out of your mind to believe that it is worth less than $100 million. You would have to be out of your mind. And that doesn't take into account the business value, which, by the way, there's a multiplier effect when you take into account the annualized net profit of a business. You should be able to sell that business for some sort of multiplier of that value over say eight to 10 years is kind of the standard figure. So if he's say it profits $10 million annually, well, you should be able to sell it for approximately $100 million or at least $80 million over the property value itself. Property value itself, I would I would estimate somewhere in the neighborhood of 100 million, maybe more. So let's say it's 175 to 200 million is the actual fair market value of Mar-a-Lago today. She's estimating to be between 18 and 25 million. It is laughable. It is nonsense. Anybody that knows anything about real estate will tell you it is a full, outright, bold-faced lie. And they are trying to put the former president of the United States behind bars while they gag him and make it impossible for him to defend himself in the court of public opinion while she attacks him in the court of public opinion. This is un-American. This is, as far as I'm concerned, criminal. Criminal on her part, not on Donald Trump's part. Now, He may be guilty of other crimes. I'm not going to say definitively that he's not. But on this front, this is completely unjust. And anybody, regardless of your political beliefs, you ought to be speaking out in his defense. Because guess what? If he's not defended properly, none of us will be. If you think that the the former president of the United States can't get a fair trial and you think you're going to, good luck. Ain't going to happen. They will come for all of us with the same nonsense. Any political dissident will be treated with the same unjust and unfair uh, legislative process, or excuse me, judicial process. It's crazy. It's crazy. These people are nuts. And keeping in mind, she campaigned on going after Donald Trump, on prosecuting Donald Trump before she had any capacity to have investigated him. Does that sound like a fair judicial process? Does that sound like a fair DA, one that declares on the campaign trail before they even have the title, before they even have the job, that they're going to prosecute the former president of the United States without any evidence as to wrongdoing? Does that sound like a reasonable American judicial process to you? Not even slightly. And it is a threat to all of us. Let's be real about it. And just to prove to you 
that you ought to take the attacks against Donald Trump seriously from Newsweek yesterday. Excuse me, two days ago. Exclusive, Donald Trump followers targeted by FBI as 2024 election nears. The federal government believes that the threat of violence and major civil disturbances around the 2024 U.S. presidential election is so great that it has quietly created a new category of extremists that it seeks to track and counter. Donald Trump's army of MAGA followers. The challenge for the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the primary federal agency charged with law enforcement, is to pursue and prevent what it calls domestic terrorism without direct reference to political parties or affiliations. Even though the vast majority of its current anti-government investigations are of Trump supporters, according to classified data obtained by Newsweek. Quote, the FBI is in an almost impossible position, end quote, says a current FBI official who requested anonymity to discuss highly sensitive internal matters. The official said that the FBI is intent on stopping domestic terrorism and any repeat of the January 6, 2021 attack on the Capitol. But the Bureau must also preserve the constitutional right of all Americans to campaign, speak freely and protest the government. Yeah, I'm sure they're really concerned with that. By focusing on former President Trump and his MAGA Make America Great Again supporters, the official said, the Bureau runs the risk of provoking the very anti-government activists that the terrorism agencies hope to counter. Yeah, no shit. Especially at a time when the White House is facing congressional Republican opposition claiming that the Biden administration has weaponized the Bureau against the right wing, it has to tread very carefully, says the official. Yeah, well, maybe you should stop weaponizing them against the right wing if you're weaponizing them against the right wing and then concerned that that might make the weaponized right wing more weaponized and more concerned. Yeah, you see, this is kind of a snake eating its own tail, an Ouroboro, if you will. Newsweek spoke to over a dozen current or former government officials who specialize in terrorism in a three-month investigation to understand the current domestic security landscape and to evaluate what President Joe Biden's administration is doing about what it calls domestic terrorism. Most requested anonymity because they were not authorized to talk publicly, were reluctant to stray into partisan politics, or feared the repercussions of speaking frankly. I ought to have uh, Steve Friend and uh, Kyle Serafin back on the show to discuss this. They're both the FBI whistleblowers. And they were the ones that actually brought this to the fore, like over a year ago. And now it's obviously being uh, targeted very directly against his entire base, which is the natural escalation of this entire process. It's terrible. Continuing, Newsweek has also reviewed secret FBI and Department of Homeland Security data that track incidents, threats, investigations, and cases to try to build a better picture. While experts agree that the current partisan environment is charged and uniquely dangerous with the threat not only of violence but in the most extreme scenarios, possible, possibly civil war, many also question whether terrorism is the most effective way to describe the problem or that the methods of counterterrorism developed over the past decade in response to al-Qaeda and other Islamic groups constitutes the most fruitful way to craft domestic solutions. Oh, you think? You think maybe you shouldn't be flying drones over American soil and classifying half of the nation as domestic terrorists? Yeah, I'd say that's a good idea. Don't do that. Continuing, quote, the current political environment is not something that the FBI is necessarily responsible for, nor should it be. Well, yeah, they're kind of responsible for it. Hey, Waco, says Brian Michael Jenkins, one of the world's leading terrorism experts and senior advisor to the president of the RAND Corporation. In a statement to Newsweek, the FBI said the threat posed by domestic violent extremists is persistent, evolving, and deadly. The FBI's goal is to detect and stop terrorist attacks, and our focus is on potential criminal violations, violence, and threats of violence. Anti-government or anti-authority violent extremism is one category of domestic terrorism, as well as one of the FBI's top threat priorities. The FBI further said, we are committed to protecting the safety and constitutional rights of all Americans 
Americans bullshit and will never open a, an investigation based solely on First Amendment protected activity, including a person's political beliefs or affiliations. We, uh, well, last I checked, you were putting people in prison for decades because of speech. Speech. Yeah. Remember the guy that wasn't even at J6? Well, you put him away for speech, did you not? Decades. The White House declined to comment. The Trump campaign was given an opportunity to comment, but did not do so. What the FBI data shows. From the president down, the Biden administration has presented Trump and MAGA as an existential threat to American democracy and talked up the risk of domestic terrorism and violence associated with the 2024 election campaign. Donald Trump and MAGA Republicans are a threat to the very soul of this country, President Biden tweeted last September, the first time that he explicitly singled out the former president. MAGA Republicans aim to question not only the legitimacy of past elections, but elections being held now and into the future, Biden said, keeping in mind that Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden himself, including everyone on the Democrat side, including every talking head, including basically everyone in this country, has heard the Democrats declare the 2016 election as fraudulent, but apparently it's now constitutes a level of domestic terrorism to do the same from the Republican side. And people wonder why uh, people on the Republican side or people that just aren't on the Democrat side view this for what it is, which is a completely lopsided judicial, judicial system. And it, really just a lopsided perception of everything that's transpiring in this country. It's so blatantly uh, you know, slanted. Biden's Homeland Security Advisor Liz Sherwood Randall said, The use of violence to pursue political ends is a profound threat to our public safety and national security. It is a threat to our national identity, our values, our norms, our rule of law, our democracy. Keeping in mind that this country was founded by seditionists. She didn't say that. <laughs> I did. Uh, for Attorney General Merrick Garland, attacks by domestic terrorists are attacks on all of us collectively aimed at rending the fabric of our democracy. Or, oh, excuse me aimed at rending the fabric of our democratic society and driving us apart. Though the FBI's data shows a dip in the number of investigations since the slew of J6 cases ended, FBI Director Christopher Wray still says that the breach of the Capitol building was not an isolated event and the threat is not going away anytime soon. Well, if he's going to make that claim, I'd like for him to back it up with actual facts. Because if he's referencing the Whitmer kidnapping case, which was whole cloth fiction once again, and just a honeypot for a bunch of guys that got hemmed up over nonsense, I don't know what he's talking about. How is it not an isolated event? Chris, please explain. In a joint report to Congress this June, the Bureau and the Department of Homeland Security say that threats from DVEs, dom domestic violent extremists, have increased in the last two years, and any further increases in threats likely will correspond to potential flashpoints, such as high-profile elections and campaigns or contentious current events. The FBI and DHS report concludes sociopolitical developments such as narratives of fraud in the recent general election, the emboldening impact of the violent breach of the U.S. Capitol, conditions related to the COVID-19 pandemic, and conspiracy theories promoting violence will almost certainly spur some domestic terrorists to try to engage in violence. The threats listed in that paragraph are all clearly associated with the America's right, and in particular with Trump's MAGA supporters. Right after January 6th, the FBI co-authored a restricted report DVE emboldened in aftermath of capital breach, elevated domestic terrorism, threat of violence likely amid political transitions and beyond, in which it shifted the definition of AGAAVE, anti-government, anti-authority, violent extremism from furtherance of ideological agendas to furtherance of political and or social agendas. For the first time, such groups could be so labeled because of their politics. It was a subtle change, little noticed, but a gigantic departure for the Bureau. Let me read that again then to make sure that we get this. It went from furtherance of ideological agendas to furtherance of political and or social agendas. Interesting. 
I don't know that I'm necessarily picking up on this being some earth-shattering change, but it's a change, so I guess it is important. Trump and his army of supporters were acknowledged as a distinct category of, of DVEs, even as the FBI was saying publicly that political views were never part of its criteria to investigate or prevent domestic terrorism. Yeah, well, they were lying. Just as they went after Muslim people and they said that they weren't. Of course they were. Post 9-11, I mean. Where the FBI sees threats is also plain from the way it categorizes them. A system which on the surface is designed to appear nonpartisan. This shifted subtly days after the events of January 6th when it comes to the, what the Bureau calls agave. Which is funny because it's like honey. Uh, we cannot and do not investigate ideology. A senior FBI official reassured the press after January 6th. We focus on individuals who commit or intend to commit violence or criminal activity that constitutes a federal crime or poses a threat to national security. But the FBI went further in October 2022 when it created a new subcategory, Agave Other, of those who were a threat but do not fit into its anarchist militia or sovereign citizen groups introduced without any announcement and reported here for the first time the new classification classification is officially defined as dves who cite anti-government or anti-authority anti-authority motivations for violence or criminal activity not otherwise defined such as individuals motivated by a desire to commit violence against those with a real or perceived association with a specific political party or faction of a specific political party well interesting because the way i perceive hillary clinton's speech about uh you know putting us in camps to deprogram us that would entail violence would it not what if I reject it? What if I decline? Do you think that she's going to permit that? Yeah, I don't think so. Well, this is a long article, so I'm going to end it there. But it's uh, everyone needs to be aware of this, man. Everyone needs to be aware. And you know, let me reiterate: very peaceful person, and I do not advocate for political violence to get your way. I think that we have superior ideas, and we ought to win this battle in the area of ideas and conversation. The people we're up against, unfortunately, don't view it the same way. If you haven't figured that out by Hillary Clinton and us putting us in camps or Hacinda Ardern and her censorship advocation, like they don't believe in open dialogue. They, f they find it to be a threat. And from their worldview, I can understand why. But from my worldview, I don't think that people that oppose them should be viewed as potential domestic violent extremists. I am, in fact, advocating for peace. I am advocating for the temperature to cool off, to decrease, to allow us to coexist once again. It's your plans which are continuing to increase the temperature, to increase the, the risk of us actually ending up in a civil war, God forbid. God forbid. You do not want that to happen. I'm speaking to my audience now. We don't want that to happen. It would be terrible. It would be absolutely horrific. But it seems as if they will not back off and that they, in many ways, are, I don't know if they're overtly attempting to bring it about or if they're just seeing what they can get away with before people eventually say, enough, I can't go any further. You've made my life just so terrible that I have to, I have to put my foot in the ground somewhere. It seems like that's what they're pushing people towards. I mean, you saw it on J6. And I think most of those people weren't even there to be violent at all, but still they were, they were motivated enough to, you know, actually risk something by going and protesting at the Capitol and say, Hey, I don't know about the election results. I don't, I think that we need to have an audit or whatever, 
some of the people there were obviously a little bit more over the top and deranged than that, but I just don't know how you can, you can now categorize people that weren't even there. You know, people that, that showed no inkling of having a violent bone in their body, but you're still going to start to categorize all of them as potential domestic violent extremists. And you're going to have a GOP that gets up there and gives lip service to how concerning all of this is, but they don't defund these organizations. I mean, you're talking about a secret police force that is now armed with a categorization to go after half of this country. And let's be honest, it's not just MAGA supporters. It's people like me. It's it's people like you. Once again, sounding like Oliver Anthony. <laughs> it's, it's anybody that isn't in alignment with the neoliberal worldview or world order for that matter. And I'm not in alignment with it. I don't believe that it's in alignment with American values. I believe that peace and open dialogue and free trade and property rights is all the founda foundational building blocks, not just of America, but of any functioning civilization. And I make no apologies for believing in that. It's with great studiousness that I have established my worldview. It is not just a thought. It is not just an inkling that I have. It is empirical evidence that I have evaluated and concluded that communism, Marxism, fascism, totalitarianism, tyranny, and, and the like are all lesser forms of government than what I proffer to you. Why should I make apologies for that? Why should I be afraid to discuss that openly? I'm not going to be afraid because if, if I, if I shut up, if I go away because I'm concerned about being categorized in that fashion, well, then we've already lost. And that applies to everybody listening to this right now. If you, if you shut up, if you stop telling the truth, well, then where are we? We have absolutely zero hope. They've already won. They already have the narrative control that they so desire. The one that they're willing to shred the bill of rights to maintain. We have to reject that. It's the only path forward. And the reason I reference pro property rights so specifically is because they are really in threat in this country in a way that I don't think most people You're are actually okay going to sleep at night understanding, yes. knowing that you have evicted a family and put them out at risk of homelessness onto the street. You're yes. okay with that? Yes. I think there should be empathy for people struggling. All right, I'll, be, I'll serve a very empathetic eviction notice. I think homelessness shouldn't exist. I think people should not be homeless. Sure, and people shouldn't be sick either. And isn't it a shame that people... Those world. are not any, that is not comparable in it any is. way. It is. Absolutely not. It's the world we live in. Yeah, of course people, that's just life. But homelessness is not life. Homelessness is a societal problem. Homelessness is something that we created. But the thing is, everything you're saying boils down to, I want the government to help me. The government should solve the problems. They don't, that's not the real world. Do you have the answers to everything in the world? No, but I have the answer to this. It's called a free market. What irritates me is when tenants tell me they can't pay rent because their mom just died. They would never call their energy provider and say, I can't pay my energy bill because my mom died. They would never call Sainsbury's and go in and say, my mom died, can I have free food? Why do they come to me? They prey and leech and use emotional manipulation on struggling landlords with stories of why they can't pay the rent and it's wrong. So, so you're telling me that tenants are the ones who are preying and leeching on Correct. landlords? Correct. And if you think he's overstating it, uh, I've got another video to show you. I'll show you in a second, but let me start by saying she says that homelessness is a uh, man-made problem, a problem that we created. No, ma'am. The homes 
are what we've created. You have to build them. It requires resources. It requires delayed gratification. It requires planning and processing and labor. It requires a lot. They don't, they don't appear out of nowhere. You can't turn on a printing press and have a house come out of the other end. That's not how it works. So we didn't create homelessness. We created housing. That's the only creation that's happening in your story. And to diminish the value of those that are willing to delay gratification and allocate capital to build housing, that then on the back end, we have consumers that are able to acquire those properties. That is the creation. That is the creative process. What you're describing would be destruction. You're, de you're describing the, destru the destruction of property rights themselves could not be more dangerous to the foundational building blocks of a functional civilization to just do away with property rights, which is what she's actually advocating for. Uh, behind all of the flowery, beautiful language about concern over the homeless, what you're actually describing is making us all wards of the state, making us all potentially homeless if we run afoul of state dictate or diktat. That's what she's advocating on behalf of, because that's really the only options you have. You either have property rights that are held on the individual level, or you have property rights that are only held by the state. Communism. That's what these people are advocating for. And just to prove it to you that this is not a one-off, that this is getting uh, particularly unhinged, we have an, a landlord uh, <laughs> that has essentially been evicted by their own or from their own property by an Airbnb guest. This is an incredible story. Jason Roth lives in a van with his dog, Wally. but get this, he is homeless and a homeowner all at the same time. It's something I can't fully wrap my head around. It's more like head banging for Jason. See, here's his Rainier Valley home, but the tenant in it is way behind on his rent. So Jason is making mortgage payments and paying for flight school. He's also owed five months rent, a total of some $29,000, not including utilities. I do come here often though. I do come here just to look at my house and miss it and wish I could be in it. Making matters worse, the renter offered Jason's downstairs unit on Airbnb for $434 a night. <laughs> he's, at the very least, he's generating $2,000 a month. And it's more than likely he's generating closer to three or possibly even four, depending on the month. And even though he didn't own the home, the city gave the renter a short-term rental license. So not only is he not paying me, but he's generating an income through the basement Airbnb unit. And meanwhile, I'm having to pay the utilities for that unit. Now he's waiting until late October for an eviction hearing. The current process for an eviction hearing in King County to go from the, from the start to the very end is about 12 months in total. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, that's, that's what this lady is actually advocating for. That homeless people, that, that if you're a landlord, if you own more than one property, you should have no right to that second or third property, right? That's the logical conclusion of what she's actually advocating for. That landlord should have no property rights at all. That a homeless person should have greater right to that because they deserve housing. That's their worldview. That's what they believe. That's This is what you get when you have that worldview. 
cities like Seattle, those that don't value and honor property rights. And this is a this is a big and increasing problem in many Democrat states that you will not be able to evict tenants that stop paying. And I know a lot of people go, well, the rent rate's too high and la 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 la. Look, this is the foundation of a functioning free market capitalist system. You have to be able to reclaim your property if someone refuses to make good on a contract. That contract says you will pay X amount. You weren't forced into that contract. You signed it voluntarily. If you can't pay that, you need to leave. And the landlord, if the state won't honor that property right, the landlord has all moral authority, as far as I'm concerned, to rec reclaim that property however necessary. It is being stolen from them. To live in a van outside your property is a level of cuckdom I didn't even know possible. As your, as your tenant is now no longer paying, hasn't paid for over five or six months, and is actively profiting off of an Airbnb in the basement of your own home while you pay the utilities and the mortgage for it? Are you kidding me? Have you lost every sense of your masculine energy? Who are you? How did you possibly have the wherewithal to accumulate enough assets to purchase a, an overpriced home in Seattle only to have it stolen from you by the tenant? Amazing. Absolutely incredible. Galling. So yeah, take it seriously, folks. Property rights are important. It's not just about the greed and the capitalism and the da-da-da. No, it's about property rights. It's about being able to actually reclaim your wealth. Because that's what that house is to that man. It's his wealth. It's his hard work. You are stealing his life force itself. It is advocation for slavery, ultimately. You are saying that this man has no right to the benefits of his labor. Because he, he was wise enough to accumulate and save it and invest it in something. It can now be stripped away because someone who has less deserves it more. It's nonsense. And it's immoral. It's criminal. And it's theft. That's the truth. Let's hear from our good friend, Jerome, or excuse me, Jay Powell. <laughs> I call him Jerome. Hi, I'm Jay Powell. I'm the chair of the Federal Reserve. And I want you to know that the Federal Reserve is now on Instagram and threads. The Fed is America's central bank working to promote a healthy economy and a strong financial system. Oh, is that what you do? Is that what you do, Jay, with your popped collar? I don't think that's exactly what you do, Jay. I think your job is actually to defend the uh, financial oligarchs of the planet much to the detriment of the rest of us. But I appreciate that you're now casual and you go by Jay and you have a pop collar and uh, no tie on. Very, very relatable. You're now on threads? Oh, you're just like us. System. That mission starts with you. October is National Economic Education Month and throughout the month and beyond, we'll be posting here with information, links to events, and other resources about how Fed decisions affect you, your family, and your community. <laughs> Follow us on Instagram and threads, the Federal Reserve, so we can propagandize you into thinking that we're not your arch enemies. Amazing. This clip ties in pretty nicely to uh, the episode I did about RFK's housing plan, so I thought we'd play it real quick. At this point, I think we might be living at our in-laws house until, you know, we get old and gray because the housing market is absolutely ridiculous. It's so sad because back in the day, you're able to just go to school, get a good job, get married, be able to buy a house, start a family. 
and possibly be able to stay part-time at home even with the children to help raise them. Now it's like, no, you get married. Where are you living? Maybe we're going to live in a shoebox. Maybe we're going to be homeless living on the street because why is a one-bedroom, one-bath like $800,000? Like, I'm just trying to wrap my head around how things are going right now because it's like it's pretty hopeless for this generation for us that are trying to start our lives and get a place it's like rent is absolutely insane you can't save any money to be able to buy a place they don't want us to own anything and they literally want to like destroy your dreams of of starting a life it's, it's just so embarrassing is how she ends that look <clears throat> there was some aspects of the rfk uh demolition that that i left out so uh, i wanted to add that here First off, the, the primary way that you organically drive down prices is to increase the supply, okay? That's the, the chart. You need supply to go up so that the, the demand can be reach equilibrium and hopefully have excess supply to the amount of demand out there so that you can see prices decline broad-based. That's what you actually have to have. So to increase the supply of housing, you need to deregulate the economy. You need to stop with the tens and tens of thousands of dollars in fees from the local level from the state level when it comes to housing developments if you were to do that that would decrease the cost of construction and the overall project so that you can pass on those savings to the consumer at the end of the day if you increase the the production enough you might actually be able to bring down the the average price of a starter home so that people like her aren't looking around saying wow a one bedroom two a one bedroom one bath for eight hundred thousand dollars how am i ever going to do this paying four thousand dollars a month in rent there's no way i can she's not lying she's right but the way you do that is by increasing supply, not by bolstering demand as RFK's plan would do. You have to increase supply. The other issue, the reason that supply has been so slow to come online is because there, it's very challenging for developers to estimate what this market will do. Just think about it. If, you're, if your end product is almost entirely uh, you know, predicated or the the resale value of your end product is almost entirely predicated on interest rate policy from the federal reserve and it takes a year plus usually two years to do any sort of large housing development where you build multiple units 10 20 50 100 i mean we need hundreds and hundreds of houses to be built well if you're if you're looking at a two-year time horizon and you're trying to estimate what the the ultimate end resale value of each of these homes will be how can you possibly know in this incredibly escalatory interest rate cycle. It's very, very challenging to know. Now, despite the fact that supply of housing is very, very low right now, because interest rates are so high and uh, you know purchasing power is decreasing very rapidly, many, many developers are looking at that and saying, wow, I can't, I can't start a 100 or a 200 housing unit project because I don't think that given the incredible cost of labor and construction material costs that I'm actually going to be able to make a profit at the end of this. So many of them just mothball these projects or they sit on the raw land waiting for a, a time where it actually feels as if they can start that project and complete it and sell it to get some level of profit. These people are not, you know, they're not going to do it for free, right? And they're certainly not going to do it if they think they're going to make uh, take a loss. The other reason that, that the cost of construction has skyrocketed is because of lockdowns. The, the supply chain was absolutely shattered during the lockdown era. I know this personally because I was building six houses at the time, and it was backbreaking. 
the the construct the material costs alone doubled and tripled for many of the major materials that go into housing including the lumber this was direct consequence of government intervention in the economy you would not have seen the supply chains be shattered how they were if not for the global lockdown which Yes, it didn't shut down all industry, but it shut down enough of it to create major, major disruptions in the supply chain. The supply chain, while it's a, a just probably the most remarkable and uh, and masterful things thing that humanity has ever concocted, because it's just like in real time, supply and demand all being met in this beautiful, organic, decentralized fashion. Well, if you have the government interfere on the global scale for any amount of time, that creates incredible dislocation of these factors that are very tenuous, that are that are just balanced in such an intricate fashion. Well, they didn't they didn't allow for the economy to function in its normal fashion, so it it created dislocation. It created uh, inflation in the products because there was too little supply and too much demand for lumber and things of that nature that goes into building housing. So because of that on top of the money printing that you simultaneously did, and we're talking six, seven trillion dollars during 2020 alone, much more if you include the past decade, well, that creates actual inflation, broad-based inflation. So you had inflation in the material costs of building homes, but then you also had broad-based inflation, which means, I mean, you, we've already discussed that in detail in the RFK episode. Um, so you have inflationary pressures on two fronts. You have the monetary inflation as well as price inflation, which means that the expected uh, you know, sale price of these houses has to be significantly higher if you expect to not take a loss on every new unit of housing that you build. So that's what developers have done. They pass on, as is always the case, they pass on the inflationary effects of government interference in the economy. They pass that on to the consumer. That makes it the starter, the starter homes are now $450,000 on average across the United States and significantly higher if you go into Seattle or DC or New York or San Francisco or San Diego or Los Angeles or Miami. I mean, the list goes on and on. But if you look behind me, I sit in Miami as we as I speak to you, there are way more lenient building uh, requirements in the state of Florida, which means that the inventory is far, far higher and it can be added to far more cheaply. And because of that, you have not seen the same uh, type of bull market that has take, taken the single family properties and put them out of reach for so many people. And that's not, that's not because, you know, Florida is Republican. It's not because Florida is better organically. It's because of policy. It's because they allow for developers to build more units, which keep, which suppresses prices. It keeps prices from getting into this bubble like territory, which you've seen in these other NIMBY cities where they say, ah, you can't, can't build to this height. You can't build this amount of density of units in this particular property. You have to have X amount of acres per property, all of these, you know, stringent requirements. They make it so that the cost of housing skyrockets. It's all government created problems all of it the market itself can solve this there is tremendous incentive as a developer going we have tens of millions of people that want to buy starter homes i want to build those let me let me acquire some raw land let me lay out the capital to do so let me sell into this market there's a tremendous amount of demand i should be able to make a, a fair return on my investment all you have to do is get out of their way and in years years literally two, three years, you could have enough supply to actually meet equilibrium and then start to bring down prices broad-based. You could do that, but it requires the government to get the fuck out of the way. 
And RFK's plan is the complete opposite, which is why it would be such a detriment to young people. I hope that makes sense. Get you out of here on this. We've got another climate change zealot. Uh, <laughs> I, oh, just stop oil protesting. These people, I mean, tell me that these people haven't uh, undergone or, or been the unwitting participants in a massive psychological operation to destroy their minds. How worse does it have to get? How many kids have to die? How many more young people have to do this stuff? I don't know what else to say, Anna. Why aren't you on the streets with us? That's all I can say. How do you explain your inaction? How do you explain it? Everyone here, all the presenters that we talk to, how do you explain your inaction? How much longer are you going to keep this journalistic objectivity up? Until the water's lapping at your ankles? Until your own kids haven't got food? How long? And, and for Just Off Oil, what's next? Will you continue to, to disrupt events or what's, what's the what's the what's the plan because it's morally wrong to not take the action that we know from history has got some chance of having an effect people feel powerless we are the opposite when we come together we have enormous power there are so many more of us than there are of them how worse my goodness look it it pains me to mock a woman that's crying always in this case i'm going to make an exception <laughs> you're a lunatic <laughs> you've completely lost the plot and the reason i feel justified in making fun of this woman is because she is a radical now it's funny to me that the fbi and all of these institutions are weaponizing the doj against you know trump supporters when in reality the most dangerous people that live not just in this country as you can tell she's in the uk but all over the world are people that have been psychologically manipulated into believing that oil, the thing that has brought more people out of poverty in the past 150 years than any innovation in human history. And it's not close. It has, has made us more wealthy, has kept us, has made it possible for us to feed more people than we ever thought possible. Talking multiples higher, seven, eight billion people on earth, we're able to feed them adequately because of oil it, it may not make sense to most people but trust me when i tell you if not for the advent of transportation and agricultural improvements that were predicated off of oil's incredible properties we would not be able to feed this many people we would not have seen billions of people dragged out of poverty if not for oil so these people that intend to uh, stop oil as they say quite overtly, they are an existential threat to the population that's on Earth. And there's a reason that these people are so Malthusian. There's a reason that they believe that the that the planet is overpopulated and that it must be cut in half or you know even more. 70-80% population reduction is what many of these people have been convinced is reality. That that's the only way that the planet can be sustaining itself. It's nonsense and it is extraordinarily dangerous. And if you have that worldview, what doesn't it justify you to advocate on behalf of? What levels of political violence are you not willing to bring to bear? The answer is there is no limit. These people believe that they are morally righteous and that if they don't do it, tens and tens of millions of people will die from starvation or from drowning because they believe that the water is going to rise so rapidly people can't actually move away i mean it's all it's all so detached from reality but they're so convinced of their moral superiority and and just they just have a level of certitude that's so extraordinary 
They will do anything that they find justified, and there is nothing that isn't justified in their worldview. That's now, if you want to talk about re-education camps, Hillary, you might want to talk to the people that you've mind-fucked into thinking that this is how you actually save the Earth, is by destroying humanity. Wh whose team are you on, Hillary? I don't even believe in the devil, but my goodness. My goodness. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. If you did, hit the like button. If you thought anything I said was wrong, please, in the comments, let me know. I do read them, and I do try and respond to as many as I can, as long as it's done in a polite and respectful fashion. If you say something in a shitty fashion, I will just drag you mercilessly. But do leave a comment nonetheless. And last but not least, if you want to share the show, uh, that's always uh, the greatest way to spread the word. I think that given the amount of misinformation that uh, young people in particular are suffering under, I would highly encourage you to share it with your, you know, college age kids, I think are, are probably the best to be hearing this message. If they have the attention span, if, if TikTok and, and the like have not completely broken their brains and they can actually listen to something for a full hour, I think that this would be a good option for them or Dave Smith, part of the problem, or a lit litany of other great shows out there. I just hope that you're uh, encouraging them to open their minds, especially while they're in college and they're being indoctrinated into some of the most dangerous and, and unhuman worldviews imaginable. I hope that they can hear some uh, countervailing viewpoints. Even if they disagree with me, I think it'll be a, a good idea to allow them to balance themselves out. And uh, if you want to pick up one of these fancy Liberty Lockdown shirts or one of those Liberty Lockdown hats with the logo right there. Uh, you can go to toploffs.com. The link will be in the description below. And if you want to support my work, go to x.com and sign up to become a subscriber. I do, uh, you know, some exclusive content over there or libertylockdown.locals.com. And I will follow you guys back on X if you become a subscriber because I want to support the people that support me. And that's, uh, you know, I scratch your back, you scratch mine, that type of thing. Uh, that's it. I'm going to get out of here. Love you guys. Peace. Welcome to Liberty Lockdown. Please scan your barcode. Your liberty ain't gone, but yeah, it's on hold. Where did it come from and where did it go?